Good morning again. We are in our series that we've called Throwback. It's a series where we're looking at the second part of the book of Acts. We're looking at the first churches that were ever started, that were ever planted, as told by the book of Acts. So we're throwing back to the roots of the very first churches so that we might ask questions like, what does it mean for us to be the church today? What is the mission of the church? What is the focus of the church? And why do we even need the church? So that's why we're throwing back. Now, speaking of throwing back, I had a moment this week where I was throwing back that will change my life forever. And to be specific, it was throwing back about 108 years to the last time the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. That has nothing to do with the sermon. <laughs> I just had to say that because I'm just so overjoyed about that. But it was throwing back. Today we're looking at the church in Ephesus. And the title of the message today is Deep Church. If you want to follow along and take notes, you can follow along on page uh, 6 in your bulletin and there's an outline there. This is a church with whom Paul went deep. Probably deeper than any other church up until this point. He spent three years together with them. And our focus is going to be on these words that we just heard as he's looking back. This is the last time he thinks he'll spend with them. So he's looking back over his three years with them and he's addressing the leaders of this church. So in Acts 20, what we have there is really a -a one-of-a-kind speech in the book of Acts. Instead of his other speeches that we read, Acts 13, Acts 17, and we've looked at some of those, where we're provided with models of how did Paul communicate the gospel to people who had never heard it before, those who were not Christians. Instead, this is a speech for people who were followers of Jesus, specifically the leaders of the church. And so what we have here in Acts 20, I would say, is Paul's recipe, or Paul's essential ingredients, to follow to create a deep church, a healthy and flourishing church. Whenever we talk about church in our day and age, one of the marks of our time is that there is, maybe amongst some of us here, but amongst our neighbors and the people that um, are around us, a deep suspicion and distrust about the church and church authority. And sadly, there is good reason for this. Some of us, tragically, have experienced things within the church that we might even call abuse. And if that's you, I'm so sorry for that. And that's terrible. A lot of us have experienced, maybe not uh, something to that level, but have experienced conflict within the church, politics within the church. And we've become disillusioned by the church or disappointed by what we've seen happen in the church of of what's happened to us. And so there's a lot of hurt when it comes to the church. But the book of Acts as a whole is telling us That the church was God's idea. That this messy and broken community of people who follow Jesus is His plan A to bring healing, to bring redemption to the world. And so if we take the book of Acts seriously, we can't give up on the church. But we do need to know, what does a healthy church look like? How do I spot one when I see one? And how can I be a part of building a healthy and deep church? So if we've been hurt or burnt by the church or church leadership, 
what we see here in Acts 20 is a picture that's hopefully something that awakens in us a desire to say, if there's a church like this, the one described here in Acts 20, I want to be a part of that church. Second level of application is because a deep church is made up of deep and healthy followers of Jesus. This speech is also important for us on a personal or individual level to see what does a deep and maturing faith in Jesus look like. And what does it mean for me? If I want to go deeper in my faith, what does that look like? What does a deep and a growing and substantial faith look like? And how do I know if I have one? There's so much here in this passage. This is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. We can't cover all of it by any means, but we're going to focus on these three ingredients of a deep church and of a deep spiritual life. And I don't know if you like cooking. I like to cook. I don't get to do it that often. But there are kind of two styles of chefs and cooks out there. There are those of us who look at those ingredients if we're following a recipe, and we have to follow it to the T. That's me. I look at a recipe like a hundred times. I keep going back and forth because I don't want to miss one of the ingredients and mess everything up. After all that work, I want it to taste right. Some of us just wing it and feel like, ah, I know what I'm doing. But here as we look at these three ingredients, what's important to realize is that for a church to be a deep church, there needs to be balance. We need to have all three of these in place. We need to see deep teaching, deep tears, and deep team. So let's look first at deep teaching. That's the first ingredient. What stands out first, probably most clearly in this passage, is how strongly Paul emphasizes his ministry of teaching while he was in the city of Ephesus. Now I have a slide. Let's see if it's here. Slide. All right, let's go forward to next one. There we go. And let's bring it all down. These are the different ways that Paul describes his teaching. He says, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Verse 20. I was teaching you in public and in house to house. I was testifying of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21. I was testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 25. He says, I was proclaiming the kingdom. Verse 27. He says, I was declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And in verse 32, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. Like I mentioned earlier, what's unique about Paul's time in Ephesus is that instead of seeing him stay just for a few months in a particular place to start a church, to establish the church, and then have to move on, what we see in Ephesus is that Paul was able to remain for an extended period of time. Three years. And if we go back to Acts 19, verses 9 and 10, it describes what he did for those three years. He started in the synagogue, and when that didn't work out, he moved to another place called the Hall of Tyrannus. And it says in Acts 19.9 that he was reasoning daily in the Hall of Tyrannus. And in verse 10, it says, This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That word there for reasoning, we've come across it before, that means dialectical teaching. A back and forth dialogue. And so Paul's focus, his focus among all of other focuses was to get as many people thinking deeply about the gospel and their lives and the connection between the two. So the first thing that's important for us to see as we look at this slide is that these don't describe seven different focuses that Paul had. They describe his one focus 
in seven different ways. And at first we might think when it comes to this idea of deep teaching, that deep teaching is delving into the difficult doctrines of Christianity, esoteric matters, and ivory tower theology. But that's not what Paul says here. Deep teaching means going deeper into the gospel, into grace, not moving beyond the good news of the gift of life and the kingdom that has come in Jesus, but delving deeper into that. And so deep teaching means seeing how the whole Bible, how all theology, how all doctrine fits and finds its center in the gospel. So I imagine, as I'm looking at this, the Apostle Paul, he's a part, if we can imagine this uh, with me, he's a part of a panel of pastors and church planners, successful pastors, being interviewed. And he's asked by the interviewer, Paul, you've planted like seven churches, six or seven years. How did you do that? Teach us. We want to learn. We want to know. What would your focus be? Tell us about year one. And Paul would say, okay, year one, my focus would be teaching the gospel. All right, that's good. Tell us about year two. What do we go, what do we go to next? And Paul would say, based on this, I think, teaching the gospel. All right, teaching the gospel year one and year two. What about year three? Well, that's easy. My primary focus would be on teaching the gospel. Why? I think Paul would want to argue, and this passage would show us, that a shallow approach, a shallow understanding of us, a shallow application of the gospel leads to a shallow church and a shallow spiritual life. One that has no impact. One that doesn't change us. There's a couple reactions probably in this room, at least to this. Some of you have a natural bent towards learning and theology and teaching, and you're like, yeah, preach it. And some of you are more activist with regard to your faith, more relational. And you might be thinking, okay, here's another sermon on teaching, teaching, teaching. Well, what I want us to see is, as we look at Paul describe his teaching, is that the way Paul does it is he challenges all of us. Whether we naturally like to learn and read, or whether we naturally don't gravitate towards those things. Paul is saying, we all have a bent towards missing the depth of the gospel. And he describes this, I think, in two ways. He says, we all have tendencies to, one, shrink the Bible, and two, to just skim the Bible. So let's talk about how we shrink the Bible. Two times, Paul says here, he did not shrink back. Look at verse 20. He says, I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable. So deep teaching is teaching that doesn't shrink the Bible by only focusing on things that we want to hear, that already align with our tastes, with our ideas and our preferences. When we shrink the Bible like this, it's no longer profitable to us. It's no longer powerful to help us. It only affirms what we already think. It only affirms how we already live. And if it doesn't challenge us, it can't change us. As we know, in the rest of our lives, what's most helpful to us is most often what's not easiest for us to hear. Whether we're going to the doctor or the dentist or in our professional careers, if we want to grow, if we want to mature, if we want to be healthy, sometimes we have to hear the things that we don't want to hear. And so this means for a deep church, that we should regularly be encountering things we don't really want to hear. We don't want to accept. A deep church will be a place where we acknowledge that that's true for all of us. 
and we wrestle with these things, we work through these things, that at first we might say, I disagree with the Bible on that. I don't like that. But I'm going to press forward to wrestle with this with the help of my community because I know that it might be profitable, profitable for me. That I need to be challenged, that I need to grow in ways that I don't realize. In verse 27, Paul says something else about shrinking back. He says, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. We shrink the Bible in another way when we gravitate only to our favorite parts. The parts we understand. The parts that are familiar to us. And we don't take time to wrestle with the whole counsel of God from Genesis to Revelation. When we do that, we have a shrunken Bible. Some of you may have heard of the Jefferson Bible. This was an actual book that was made by Thomas Jefferson. Later on in his life, he, he, cut, he actually cut and pasted a physical Bible with a razor and glue to get numerous sections out of the New Testament. He removed all the miracles of Jesus. He removed all the references to Jesus being equal with, with God and divine. And all, most of the references to the supernatural, including the resurrection. And that was his Jefferson Bible. Another way to translate counsel, the whole counsel of God here, is with the word purpose. We all tend to have our own version of the Bible. We have the ESV, Eric Standard Version, the places that I like to go, the places I'm familiar with, the places that tend to warm my own heart. But Paul says you need the whole thing. The whole thing is profitable. When we edit and ignore parts of the Bible, what ends up happening is that instead of our lives being conformed to God's purpose and God's agenda, we end up using the Bible for our own purposes. It becomes a tool for our own agendas. Those are the ways that we shrink the Bible. We also contend to skim the Bible. Paul says in verse 21, he was testifying of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And what this shows us is that deep teaching is not just imparting information. It's not just sharing facts. It's not just having interesting discussion. Deep teaching calls for a deep life response. A wholehearted turning around of our lives, repentance. A transfer of trust in our lives to God and His Son Jesus, faith. So we may be taking in a lot of Bible information. We might have read all kinds of theology. We might be listening to sermons and podcasts and reading books and blogs as passive consumers or of critics who rarely ever experience a redirection of our lives. If that's true of us, we know that we're only skimming the surface. No matter how much we know about the Bible, no matter how much we think we are going deep into theology, it's only skimming the surface of our lives. On the other hand, we can also skim the Bible when we downplay theology. Say, that's not for me, learning's not for me, and avoid deep learning and studying. So a deep church with deep teaching will challenge all of us. We'll challenge everyone in the ways that we tend to shrink or skim the gospel. This week in the New York Times, I just came across this column by a guy named Farad Manju. He specializes in technology and its impact on society and on business. 
So he wrote an article, and the article was called How the Internet is Loosening Our Grip on Truth. And the idea behind the internet, there is so much information available to us all so we can fact check, so we can have a clearer grasp on the truth and more open access to the truth. Instead, he notes there's all kinds of conspiracy theories floating around on the internet that all kinds of people believe. And he was mentioning one that Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are actually the same person. I had not ever seen that before, but people believe that. And he's asking, how is this possible? And I want to quote him here. And we can have the quote up here on the screen. You can follow along with me. He's actually quoting another researcher within this quote. But he says, Psychologists and other social scientists have repeatedly shown that when confronted with diverse information choices, people rarely act like rational, civic-minded automatons. Instead, we are roiled by preconceptions and biases, and we usually do what feels easiest. We gorge on information that confirms our ideas, and we shun what does not. This other researcher says, this creates an ecosystem in which the truth value of the information doesn't matter. Says Walter Quattro Chiochi. That's a hard name to pronounce. One of the study's authors. And here's what this guy says. All that matters is whether the information fits in your narrative. Now, this is not about the internet being the problem. The internet reveals our human tendency to filter information Not on whether it's true. Not on whether we've reasoned with it and determined its truth value, but whether it fits into the story we already believe in about ourselves and the world. In a deep church that's committed to deep teaching of the gospel, it won't just be one group or one type of person whose biases and preconceptions and ideas are challenged. Whether you're traditional or whether you're progressive, we will all be challenged by the narrative of the gospel. Deep teaching means if we simply fit the gospel into our existing narratives, we lose its power. It won't impact us. Instead, we learn to see all of our lives through an entirely new narrative, the story of the gospel, of God's grace come to us in Jesus. That takes time. That's difficult. It's not easy. It takes patience with ourselves and with each other. The deep teaching is how our churches and how our lives become deep. Second key ingredient for a deep church and a deep faith is deep tears. If deep teaching addresses a shallow understanding of the Christian faith, deep tears addresses the danger of having a hollow Christian faith. Of having everything on the exterior but nothing inside. Of having mental assent with no heart. Twice in this speech, Paul points to his tears as signs of the authentic nature of his ministry. In verses 19 and verse 31, he says, This is proof that my leadership is not self-serving, but it's from God, and was out of genuine care and love for you. So my pastoral insight here into the original Greek is that the word tears here means tears. Very profound that Paul actually wept real tears with people. He says he taught publicly. He says he taught house to house. He was spending time with people in their homes, and he was weeping over his longing for them to find healing and wholeness and holiness in the gospel. As he heard their struggles, 
as he heard their stories. He longed to see the gospel go deep into their lives. So let's go back to Paul being interviewed at the conference or by the interviewer with the panel. Paul, surely there was more to your ministry than teaching. There's more to being a pastor and to your success than that. What else can you say about the ingredients of a great church? What else is there? I think Paul would say, okay, I have another one. You need to cry with people a lot. And for some of us, tears might come naturally. For me, it's not natural to actually cry. Because of my, my story and the way that I'm wired, I have a little lid on my tears that's just kind of permanently clamped shut. And I have to pull that thing open if I will go there, if I will feel grief and let the tears flow. But the truth is, the person who will teach at you, but who won't shed tears with you, is not fit to be a leader in the church. Not qualified. Deep tears are what brings deep teaching to life. We can know something is true, but it won't penetrate our hearts until it's brought home to us with deep love and care. A quick story from my own life. A number of years ago, at the tail end of my seminary education, when I was finishing up, my parents got a divorce. And divorce of any kind is painful for children of any age, so I was processing that and working through that. And I shared how I was doing. I shared this with a community group that I was a part of at, at the time. And so as I'm sharing, somebody says, oh, that happened to me too. Let me just share some words for you. And basically what this person said was, just give it a little time and you'll get over it. I got over it, no big deal. You just kind of, it'll be okay. And that wasn't very helpful for me. In fact, I was kind of bitter about the way that that was dismissed. A couple weeks later, I was at a pastor's conference and I was sharing with a group of pastors, a pastor's retreat, and I was sharing some of the story behind my parents' divorce and what had happened and how I was doing with all of that. And after I'd shared that with the group, a pastor who was a mentor of mine came over to talk to me. And there were tears in his eyes. He said, I'm so sorry. That's so hard. I've experienced that too. And we chatted about how the gospel went deep into his heart. And I can say the experience was completely different. I will never forget the way that I was loved and cared for. It gave me deep hope in the gospel. Teaching without tears is too cold for anybody to be moved to change. Tears without teaching is too soft and that it never asked for anybody to change. Paul embodied the approach of Jesus, deep teaching with deep tears. There was never any teacher as bold as Jesus, but there was never any teacher as caring and loving as Jesus. This connection between teaching and tears is also important, not only for ministry, but also for our personal maturity. Paul's tears help us define what spiritual maturity looks like in our lives. If there was one metric, if there was one measure in the Bible that we would use to, to assess or diagnose the depth of our spiritual maturity, I think it would be this. How deeply do we love and care for the people God has put into our lives? Especially the people who are closest to to us. It's not how much you know. It's not how much you do. It's how well you love. How are you actively serving the people that God has put the closest to you? That's the measure 
of a deep spiritual life. And so, it makes me ask, why did Paul cry with people and for people? What moved him so deeply for other people? In verse 31 and 32, Paul says this, I admonished everyone with tears night and day, and now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. What moved Paul to tears was, one, his longing for people to be built up in grace, to be built up in the gospel. He had this vision for people. I see what God is building in your life. He's not complete yet. But oh, how I long for you to be that. And at the same time, he had grief for people in their suffering, in their struggles. As they were stumbling towards this vision, he had deep compassion for them, for where they were hurting and in their brokenness. It was vision and compassion that moved Paul to tears for people. And this vision and compassion is what brings the power of the gospel into our relationships as well. As we learn to love well into our marriages. To have that vision for our spouse. I see what God is building in you. Oh, how I long for you to be that. And as you struggle, and as you stumble, and as you fail to live up to that vision, I have great compassion for you. I will weep with you. For our kids, the same thing. I see it. I see little glimpses of what God is building in you. But you're going to struggle, you're going to stumble, you're going to fail. I have great compassion for you when you do. This is what a great friendship is built on. A vision for what God can do and a longing for that combined with compassion when we don't live up to it. Deep teaching, deep tears. The third ingredient is deep team. The the people to whom Paul is speaking to were his leadership team in Ephesus. And there are three terms here used for these people, elder, overseer, and the image of shepherd, when he talks about the flock. And these three terms, elder, overseer, and shepherd, are used interchangeably in the New Testament to describe um, the leadership of the church. And here we see the New Testament Testament model for church leadership. That it's not one person, it's not a solo figure, it's meant to be a team. So one more time, we go back to Paul being interviewed. He's on a panel, and the interviewer says, so, okay, teaching and tears, that's good stuff, Paul. Is that it? Any last words for young church leaders in training, for Christians who want to go deep? I think Paul would say, yeah, one more thing. Never try to do this alone. You need a team. In our study of Acts, We've seen how Paul lives and how he leads the church. He's always working with the team. He's adding people to his team. He's training people on his team. He's building a team. He's almost never alone. The only time we saw him alone was in Athens, and that was kind of a detour on his way to meet up with his team again. And his team wasn't just about, hey, I need you to join my team to accomplish my vision and and meet my goals. His team were the people he loved. Deep teaching and deep tears without deep team is the recipe for burnout, for exhaustion in ministry and in life. 
If you look at verses 36 at the close here and 38, can you imagine this scene? They're weeping on the beach. These men are gathered together. They're hugging and embracing. And they're so sorrowful. They're most sorrowful about, as it says, that they wouldn't see him again. That's the kind of team a deep church will have at the leadership level and throughout the church community. There's an author named Nate Larkin. And I think I have his quote to share with you as well. He's been a very influential author in my life. And he talks about this idea of team for our Christian lives. And here's what he says. He says, The church, according to the New Testament, is not a loose confederation of individuals. The church is a body, a living and breathing organism whose members are so intimately connected that they can only move together. This is the part I love. On any given day, every member of that body needs help. And every member has some help to give. For years I had been begging God for a private solution to my private problems, and He had always ignored that request. In order to have a deep, living and thriving faith, we all need a deep team to be a part of our lives. And to have a deep and growing spiritual life, to have relationships that have that kind of depth, to have a team in our lives that if we had to move on, there would be a scene like what we see here in the Apostle Paul's life. There would be embracing and weeping and sorrow. How do we build that kind of team? Who should we look for to be a part of our team? I think we can have a few guidelines here in this passage to make it practical. And I think I have these as well to share on a slide. We need people who can steer us toward and remind us of, as Paul says, the course and the ministry that we have received from the Lord Jesus. We need people who don't shrink back from telling us the truth. We need people in our life who we would trust with our tears. And we need people who have a humility and a hunger to learn and grow along with us. So we need to be this kind of friend and to seek these kinds of friends to be with us on our team. So those are the three ingredients, deep teaching, deep tears, deep team. This is the kind of church, this deep church that God intends that brings life and wholeness and blessing to the world. This is the kind of deep spiritual life that brings us flourishing, that brings us deep joy and helps us bring deep joy to others. Last year there was a massive research project that was conducted by the Barna Group on the spiritual lives of, of Christians. And one of the things it asked was, what are the top barriers for you when it comes to spiritual growth? And for practicing Christians, these were the top two. Spiritual growth, number one, will require a lot of hard work. And number two, the busyness of life. That may describe you. Some of your barriers that you sense to a deeper and more joyful Christian life. You might say, that's something I want. I want to go deeper. But if I said, okay, if you want to go deeper, you're going to have more hard work. You're going to be even busier. Who wants to, who wants to sign up for that? It, although it might be true that it requires hard work. That we have to deal with our busyness. It won't move you to change. It won't call you forward into a deeper relationship with Jesus. 
One of the, the hardest things about learning how to swim, if you remember back to the time when you were learning how to swim, was moving away from just learning to swim in the shallow end to making it all the way through into the deep end. And I remember how terrified I was when I had to swim in my um, swim lessons from one length to the other length, pass through in the deep end. Because we know in the shallow end, if something goes wrong, okay, I've got a solid safety net there. But in the deep end, there's nothing there. We have to make it all the way through. But what's true about swimming is that the harder you thrash, the harder you try, the more you sink. But the more you trust, and the more you rest, the more you float. I think that's a great picture of the Christian life. That we can only go deep as we learn that it's not about my effort in trying harder. It's not about thrashing about and becoming busier in life. It's about learning to trust that God will carry us deeper. That He will build us into deeper people, move us more deeply into the lives of others. We do have to move. We do have to embark out of the shallow end. But as Paul says here, it's the word of His grace that builds us up and carries us to the end. We sang about this earlier in one of our songs, but I just want to close with this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus. He was there with His team. But His team was asleep. Can you guys, can you pray for me? This is the hardest moment in my life. And they, they couldn't. They were sleeping. He didn't have his team. He was weeping tears. And his sweat was pouring down like drops of blood. This was all so that his teaching would come to life. As he is the one who said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And here he was, giving himself, going deep into the Father's will, which meant he had to go deep, bearing our sins, covering the ways that we have resisted God, to invite us in, to enable it, enable us to make it possible that we would be able to go deep into his grace. So let's go deep. Trinity, let's be a deep church and trust that it is the word of His grace that builds us up and carries us all the way. Please pray with me. Jesus, we thank You for this this passage, this portrait of a deep church, of a deep spiritual life. We all struggle with remaining shallow for all kinds of reasons. But I pray, even today, that you would give us the courage and the steps to move out of shallowness and into the deep end, whether it's with other people, whether it's with the people that are closest to us in our lives. We have to move to them with tears of repentance, move to them with tears to express our vision and our compassion for them. I pray that you would build deep community and friendships into all of our lives, that we would not try to go at it alone. And may the gospel always be sweeter and richer and deeper to us. May it never go old, grow old to us.
even as we close, even as we sing, I pray you would awaken in our hearts a fresh vision of the beauty of your grace. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we close with a final song together?